If you're shown a hotel room that you've been told is the honeymoon suite, your expectation will be high. If there's no plush carpet, no spa or champagne, you'll be disappointed. On the other hand, if you've been told before the door opens that it's a jail cell, you'll be delighted to find even the most modest comforts. The fact is that a lot of Christians are cast down all the time because they don't expect the attacks on their peace and joy that are inevitable. At least a half of being upset is the frustration that says it's not supposed to be like this because we don't have proper expectations. That's from Dr. Tim Keller's uh, material in the Gospel in Life curriculum. Expectations can be very cruel. And all of you know, whether you're a child or an adult, how difficult it can be to have a certain set of expectations and then they get under-fulfilled or they don't get fulfilled at all. It can be devastating. I got this from uh, Psychology Today magazine, a very reputable psychology uh, periodical, uh, talking about expectations. And this is very interesting, the scientific evidence that they're discovering about what is it that triggers those disappointments. Listen. The brain is a finely tuned to expectations and an expectation that isn't met, no matter how seemingly unimportant, can sometimes pack a punch. This stands out with young children who can lose the plot at the slightest unmet expectation, like not having that extra cookie. An unmet expectation packs a punch for adults also. Here's why. The best brain research on expectations comes from Professor Wolfram Schultz at the Cambridge University in England. Schultz studies links, listen to this, studies links between dopamine and the reward circuitry that's in the brain. Schultz has found that when a cue from the environment indicates that you're going to get a reward, dopamine releases in response. Unexpected rewards release more dopamine than expected ones. Thus, a surprise bonus is at work and can positively impact your brain chemistry more than anyone expected to rise. However, if you're expecting a reward and you don't get it, listen, if you're expecting a reward and you don't get it, Dopamine levels fall steeply. This feeling is not pleasant. It feels a lot like pain. And it can last for days. Not only does dopamine go down in these instances, you also get a mild threat response, reducing the prefrontal, function, prefrontal functioning for deliberate tasks. In other words, your overall work will go down, your effort, your ability. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter of desire. At least now we know why the real reason is the chicken wanted to cross the road. It was craving more dopamine. 
Depression, one psychologist said, has increased tenfold in recent decades as people in this generation, old and young, struggle to cope with the disappointment of unmet expectations. The actor Antonio Banderas is a favorite of mine. He said, expectation is the mother of all frustration. All of us understand what it is to have expectations. And maybe if you're an older person, you had some idea of what your life was going to be like as you grew up. And I would venture to guess that hardly anyone has met those. Uh, And if you're a young person, you already know what it is not to get what you want. It can be very frustrating. It can feel a lot like pain. One of the things that I love about the scripture is the reality that the scripture teaches how honest it is with us, how forthright it is. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And in that one sentence, our Savior takes the two poles of unexpected expectations and wildly amazing expectations and he brings them together and he he knits them in a way that they are going to be uh, have to be embraced by you and I in tension every day of our life and I think Christmas the Advent season perfectly represents this we come to Christmas and those of us that are older we have all of these memories of what Christmas was like the joy the innocence the beauty the peace And yet our expectations throughout our life have been let down. And so we can become the fruit of unexpected expectations when it's not managed properly can be cynicism and discouragement. And that's something that we as Christians, cynicism is a sin, plain and simple. It's just absolutely being rebellious to God. Cynicism is a sin. So let's take a look at this passage. It's printed in your bulletin. You can find it in your Bible as well in John chapter 12. And as we remind you each week, we print the passage in the the bulletin for your convenience. But we hope that you do bring your Bibles because uh, there's an advantage sometimes to having uh, the scriptures with you uh, in church. Uh, But we certainly want to encourage you to read along as I do read this passage now. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. And think about... Uh, the expectations that these apostles had and how Jesus is going to give them the reality of what it's going to be living in this new kingdom, the kingdom of God that has come because of the king that has come. Now hear God's word. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so how do you manage expectations in a biblical way, a God-honoring way, so that you don't fall into the same patterns that the rest of the world falls into? You see, the world... Unmet expectations will cause you over time to either give up your expectations and just say, oh, what the heck, and become a fatalist and say, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just take whatever comes. Or if you're a Reformed Christian, that kind of Christian, a Reformed type, you will ascribe it all to God's sovereignty. And you'll say, inshallah. That's Arabic for whatever God wills. And you become basically... Uh, a fatalist Christian, a fatalistic Christian. I'll just take whatever comes. If God wills, I'll accept it. And if God wills, I will take it. On the other hand, you can become the eternal optimist, the Pollyanna type, who every time their expectations are dashed, you just say, oh, I live in America. I can be anything I want. You know, folks, every graduation from high school, somebody gets up and gives a speech telling kids you can be whatever you want. I, I will never be able to dunk a basketball. No matter how much I want, I'm not going to be able to dunk a basketball unless they get a crane and lift me up to there and then I put the basketball in there. It's just not going to happen. So to be telling people, oh, you can be whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, you can have whatever you want. Well, that's not a Christian view of expectations. How do you find a balance? I'm going to suggest there is no balance. You're either going to be cynical or you're going to have to take on an, an eternal optimist view and nothing ever gets you down and just kind of fake your way through it. Or you can look at what Jesus told us in this passage because he was facing a group of men whose expectations were about to be dashed in the most horrific way that we can imagine. Disappointed beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Look at what he says. We're going to look at three things. I'm going to give it to you quickly. And uh, we'll go through them quickly as well. So pay attention. First of all, he's going to uh, affirm to them a past eruption. Now, I'm not talking about eruption like a volcano erupting out. That's an eruption with an E. But I'm talking about what Bruce Walkie, Dr. Walkie, calls an eruption with an I. I I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. Eruption. That is the breaking in. The breaking in, not the outflowing of a volcano, but the breaking in like the heavens peeling back and, and, and this power flowing into the known universe. It's what Michael Williams, uh, the quote I gave you a few weeks ago, the trajectory is from heaven to earth. It's an eruption into time and space. It's a cosmic eruption. Where God comes in, the person of His Son in the Incarnation, and everything is changed, everything is turned upside down, and is never going to go back. And Jesus affirms that that is in fact the truth, and He tells His apostles that. He then points them to a present tension. So you've got this past eruption, the reality that the kingdom has broken in, that it is here now, and... He's pointing us to the present tension, the reality that the fact that the kingdom is here and yet the world is still as it is, 
which all of us as Christians struggle with, why can't things be better? How come everybody's not nice? How come I find some of the meanest people on God's earth? Where? In church. Mean and cruel and hateful. Why? And we don't have to look very far. Look in the mirror. That's us. We can be mean and hateful if somebody doesn't measure up to our standards or doesn't get us what we want or doesn't behave a way that we think they ought to behave. Like you became the the source of all moral grounding in the world. So there's a present tension. And then finally we'll look at the glorious future. Jesus says something. It's easy to go over it. But wow, when he says it, it it should just knock us over. And we'll look at those very quickly. Okay, look at it. The past eruption. This is what I've mentioned many, many times in church and what uh, many scholars have written. Uh, 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 Dr. Herman Ritterboss called it the already not yet. Dr. Richard Pratt called it the ICC, the inauguration, continuation, and consummation. And let me be very frank with you folks. If you don't get these categories and plug them into your life, every day of your life, every single day, sometimes multiple times of the day, Christianity makes absolutely no sense. I'll be the first one to say so. Christianity makes no sense unless you understand the concept of already not yet or inauguration, continuation, and consummation. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense. And so when you're looking at the Christian world around you in your life and church and all of that from from America to the Middle East to Asia to Africa, wherever you want to go on this planet, you look at the the church globally. If you don't understand the already not yet, you will not get Christianity. Look what Jesus says in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Those that, of you that have read the Gospel of John know that it, the, one of the themes in the Gospel of John is Jesus repeating many, many times as the story in John ramps up to this point right here, he says, the hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. Here, chapter 12, a bunch of Greeks come to him and they want to see Jesus. That was unheard of. You didn't let Greeks come into your your uh, uh, close proximity because they were unclean. And interestingly, John doesn't say, Jesus said, uh, tells them, come on in. Come on, I'll talk to them. Of course I will, which he probably did, but we don't know. Instead, John uses the occasion to make an incredible point. The hour has come. For what? Look what he says. For the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man is now going to be glorified. By what? He's moments away from going to the cross. He's moments away from the most horrific darkness that has ever covered the earth or ever will cover the earth. Moments away. And he has the temerity to tell the audience and then John telling us the story, hey, the hour's come already. The King has come. He's here. Darkness is going to be dispelled by light. There will be no more gloom. You you know this passage, don't you? All of you know this. Those of you that have been in church all your lives, you've heard this a million times. Listen. 
There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. See, the Greeks were there to see their Savior here. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Do you realize Isaiah, a prophet, a Jewish prophet, was saying that the day that glory comes to the earth is the day that the king comes, not just for his people, not just for the nation of Israel, but for you and I, the dogs, the unclean, the lepers, the outcast, the no accounts. That's the day the glory comes. That's the day the eruption occurs. That's the day the already comes. The day that He ascends to His throne. The cross. Because the cross made it possible for you and me and every Jew and everybody else to come into the kingdom and be part of that great kingdom. The glory for unto us a child is born. The cross is at the same time, folks, the most horrific thing anybody can imagine and at the same time, the most beautiful. See, if you don't find beauty in the cross, and I'm, I, I, I'll just tell you right now, and I hope none of you share this, what I'm about to say. Uh, in fact, I need, probably need to tell Sal to edit it. Where's Danielle? Danielle here? Okay, be sure you cut this out because if any Presbyterians find out I said this, they're going to... I'll be, I'll be disrobed. This is a Protestant cross. Don't you love that? It's beautiful. You'll never see this cross in most churches. What will you see up there in most churches around the world? You'll see a crucifix, and some of them are pretty awful. I looked online, by the way. I went and looked up a bunch of them, and there are some amazingly horrific crucifixes. And Protestants love to pass themselves on the back and say, oh, we don't have Jesus up on a cross. He's resurrected. And let me tell you, it has impoverished us. Impoverished us. We should never forget that. Never. The resurrection doesn't take that away. The resurrection only makes it wonderful. You understand the difference? The resurrection doesn't take away the horror. The resurrection only makes it wonderful. But if you forget the horror, then let me ask you, where's the wonder? Where is the wonder? If you don't see the horror, what are you going to do with your guilt and your shame and the crushing, the crushingness of guilt and shame? What are you going to do with it if you don't have somebody on the cross for you? There's nowhere to go. We can never forget it. Never. Listen to what Paul said. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. And for Paul to have said that is mind-blowing because you have to understand how Jews viewed crucifixion. For a person to be crucified was a scandal. It was scandalon or 
translated into English, a stumbling block. They could not get over the fact that their king and Messiah had come and his glory would be a cross. They couldn't get over it. And Paul, once he's regenerated, once he's born from above, his view as, as, as a believer now takes on a whole different complexion. Already I see it. I see the glory. The glory is the cross. Americans love to move quickly beyond suffering, quickly beyond pain, and we want to go quickly to success and well-being and everything should be wonderful and peachy keen. And the problem is that it crushes our expectations. And so you have everybody from TV preachers to politicians constantly telling us it's going to be okay and patting our hands and telling us we can have our best life now and patting us and telling us all's going to be well. God wants you to be rich and wealthy and healthy and on and on and on. And you're laying in a bed and the doctor has just come in and said, you've got a terrible cancer. And you're going, what's wrong with me? Why isn't my faith better? Why doesn't God love me? How come Chuck's the only one he loves? But if you have this view of expectations, your world can be transformed. You see, I'm not arguing for somewhere between having no expectations or having too high expectations or having none. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that your expectations in life were changed by the eruption of the king, the coming in of the kingdom, and that from there you don't stay on that continuum any longer between no expectations or Pollyanna expectations. You get off that line altogether and you go up to his. What are his expectations? First one he said is, already, already, the king has come. Already, Jesus, I don't care what anybody tells you on late night Christian TV, Jesus is not a king in absentia. He is king now, yes? He is king right now over a present kingdom. Where is that kingdom being displayed every day? In His church, in His people. How is it being displayed? Well, one way it's being displayed is imperfectly. Why? Because you and I are still in part of the church. But how is it also being being displayed perfectly and beautifully? Because here, I hope, is a room full of people who at some point in your day, when nobody else is looking and nobody else is around and nobody else can hear or see, that you just take one moment and you look up and say, thank you, wow, wow, what have you done for me? I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was a leper, but now I'm clean. And one time in the day when it just captures you and you think, wow, amazing grace, how sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. But when you do that, you're going to be put into tension. Your expectations are going to, you're, you're going to feel the, the uncomfortableness of having expectations and, and, and the, the, the promise of glory and yet not quite yet. And that's the second point here, this present tension. The past, Jesus said, it's come. 
But the present, what do you do with the present? You know, I know some of you pretty well, and I know others of you less well. Some of you I know very well, and I know that you're suffering. And you're going, what the heck? What is going on with my life? How come my expectations are not being met? What is going on? Listen, if you don't get this, your life is going to be complete frustration. And I'll tell you, Christians should not live in chronic frustration. It's okay to get frustrated. I get frustrated. But if you stay there and stay there and stay there, what happens when the tension is being pulled and there's nowhere for it to go? What's going to happen at some point? Snap. The rubber band's going to break and somebody's going to get hurt on one side or the other of those expectations. You with me? At the same time, if you have somewhere to go with that tension... Well, magic happens. Look at what Jesus said in verses 24 and following. Very simple. You know, folks, when you read your Bible, you have to be thinking like this. You can't just read willy-nilly. You've got to think, what is he saying? What is he saying? Look. Unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. Now, what is he saying? Well, he's using hyperbole for one thing. He's using hyperbolic language to show the extreme. You've got to lose your life to keep it. You've got you've to give up your life to save it. And if you hang on to your life, then you're going to lose it. I mean, he's using hyperbolic language, and that's okay. We understand what a hyperbole is. I hope you do. But he's also saying this is real. It really is true. If you really are clinging to your life, how do you expect to hold on? How many of you expect never to die? See, nobody raises their hand because we know we're going to die. Now, when you're young, you think it's a million years away. But when you're my age, it's right there on the horizon. And some of you, the horizon's already caught you, right? And you're running the other way. Well, guess what? Good news. It's going to catch you. (laughs) Talk all you want. Blow all you want. Have all the arrogance you want about how much control you have over your life. And I'm going to dictate. I'm the captain of my soul. And I'm this and that and the other thing. And we'll all be singing over your grave someday. Welcome to church. Don't you love that? What do you want? You want me to, you, you, you want me to, to sing, uh, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town or something? Come on, the reality, folks, is that we are destined for the grave. It's going to die. That grain of wheat's going to fall into the ground. What Jesus said is, the grain of wheat's going to fall into the ground, and unless it does, that little word, unless it does, It can't bear fruit. Think about it. Now, we all know he's talking about himself, and I'm not saying he's not. But he says that this applies to us as well. You see, unless there is something going on inside of you where the world is less and less attractive, where the tension has less and less of a hold on you, you're still a slave to it. It's okay to get frustrated. It's not okay to remain in that frustration to the point of it snapping and breaking 
and taking you away in one direction or the other. No expectations, I don't care, whatever God wills and start playing this crazy game about God's sovereignty or to be Pollyanna, everything's going to come up roses. Instead, go to the cross, go to the grave and find your salvation. Find the place where it can't control you and can't be taken away. Embrace. What I'm saying is that Jesus is telling you, look, if you hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you hate your life, you'll get it. He's telling you, do something. Don't just sit there and, and let everything fall on you. No, he's saying, embrace it. Embrace the upside down kingdom. Embrace the world as it is. Look at it for what it really is. Have a straight up, clear-eyed view. Clear of what the world really is. It is broken. It is sick. It is in desperate need of a Savior. My life is broken and sick. I am in desperate need of a Savior. And therefore, I will rise. I will get off of that line. I'll get off of that continuum. And I will go to the Gospel so that I can be salt and light. So that I can be the present kingdom. So that my life, I have... I would ha- I'll have an opportunity to die for people. I will have an opportunity to give up my rights. I know this goes counter to the American mindset, but think about it. Jesus is saying, die for somebody. Give up your life for someone, for crying out loud. Are you going to hang on to it as if you could? Or are you going to get off that line between no expectations and all kinds of expectations? Are you going to get off that line and come to me? And are you going to find things and people and the world and the stewardship of this beautiful creation and actually die for it? Give up your life for it if it requires that. Well, but you don't know they were so mean to me and they did this and that. Well, boo-hoo. Die for them. Well, my marriage is a mess. Boo-hoo. Love your wife. Wives, respect your husbands. Well, but I can't respect him. Really? Really? And what do you mean by that? Please explain. Well, but you don't know. Oh, yes, I do. See, all I have to do is turn around and look up there and I know exactly. Yes? Do you get it? You want to talk about shame? You want to talk about embarrassment? You want to talk about ugly, bad? Look there. We've cleaned it up, folks. We've made it look real nice. We gilded it in gold. And if Jesus walked in this room right now, he'd be looking around going, where's my cross? I don't even see it in here. Doesn't look familiar to me, that one. I know what mine looked like. Will you die for somebody? Will you give your life for someone? Will you care and get off that continuum? Well, they didn't meet my expectations. I know. Have a redemptive. You remember when we were in 1 Peter? I told you, have a redemptive response. Christ, I don't know what it is. I know Marty V and I have been married 40 years by the grace of God. And we'll both tell you it's by the grace of God. But in order for us to remain married for 40 years, we had to die to a lot of expectations. Did we give up on them? No. We just took them to the cross and had them remade, born again, so that we could live without the tension and frustration. 
If you have children that have gone off the rails or kids, if you're, you know, you're trying to figure out what is my life going to look like, have your expectations built around the cross of Jesus Christ, around his life, death, resurrection. Put it there. And you'll be willing to suffer, willing to die, willing to give in. Your life will become, listen, folks, imagine if our life became more spacious where there was room around us for people to actually get close. You'd actually have real friends instead of Facebook friends. Real people that you could share your life with, that you could say to them, hey, you know, I'm, I'm suffering with this. And they won't blink. They'll say, well, come here, let me hug you. We'll go, we'll go this journey together. Instead of going, oh, no, yeah, you know, and, and freaking out over every little thing. I wish someone had come to Monty V and I when we were struggling in our marriage. We didn't dare. We were in a church that if we had told anybody our marriage was in trouble, do you know what would have happened? We'd have been escorted out the door. And if we had told them what really happened in our marriage, they would have burned us alive. They would have, they would have put us on a stake and burned us. Yes? Well, they would have burned me. They probably wouldn't have burned her. She's... What about the glorious future? You see, if you're going to live in this tension, folks, you have to be willing to embrace the tension and not see it as just resignation. That's the danger of unrealized expectation. You see, cynicism, think about this. Cynicism is just giving up. It's getting up in the morning and just putting on a robe and a pair of slippers and saying, I give up, I quit. And that's not okay. That's not okay. Jesus wants you to get dressed, put on the armor of God, and go out there and do what? Wage war. Holy war. Not against other people, but against the forces of darkness that are arrayed against us and have kept us down. And here's how he does it. Here's the future. Look at this. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he's saying, are you willing... I'm, I'm pleading with you this morning, folks. Please, be willing to do this. If you're willing to die, if you're willing to give it up for Christ, really, all the way, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where are you going to follow him? To streets paved with gold? Yes, but not yet. You've got to go there first. You've got to die. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. That's what he said. And he wasn't fooling around. He wasn't whistling Dixie and saying, well, I don't really mean that. He really means it. Take it up. Follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. You know, it's shocking. Shocking. That Jesus doesn't find us. I want to ask you, does he find you with him? Or somewhere else? Let's be with him. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, look, if anyone serves me, he, it's, you can almost hear him pleading. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This means that there is a certain future beyond all that pain, beyond all that heartache, beyond all of the unrealized expectations Beyond all of it, there is a place where the only being in all the universe whose opinion really matters 
is going to honor you. If I believed that, I would be a different person. I struggle to believe that, do you? But imagine if it's true, and Jesus is saying it is true. So finally, you have to have an eternal perspective. You have to be able to look back in the past and say, yes, the kingdom has broken in. I believe that. I believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1. I believe the gospel. And then you continue day by day by day, trusting him in the tension and getting off that terrible, that terrible continuum between those two extremes and going to both suffering, sorrow, but also joy and gladness and hope. And finding honor in the one person, the one who really matters, folks. Kids, young people, listen to me. The one who really matters is Jesus. Not what your teachers say, not what your, the, child, the school counselors say, not what anybody says. What Jesus says about you. And those of us that are old that have already have a string of failures, a lot of mileage on our lives. We've made a lot of mistakes. I live sometimes in what I think is a pool of regret. The only hope I can find is that. And I know that some of you are like that. Let me close with this and listen carefully. This is so beautiful, I couldn't pass it up. I know it's taking a few more minutes, but please listen. From Charles Spurgeon. Famous group of sermons that Spurgeon preached called The Cross Before the Crown. The Cross Before the Crown. You've heard that, right? The Cross Before the Crown. This is from that. Listen. Your mind's eye can see the procession yonder. Notice it carefully. At the head of it, there walks one whom we rightly call Master and Lord. You may know him by the prints of the nails on his hands and his feet. I observe that he carries a cross and that it is a very heavy one. Do you see the long line following him? They are all those of whom the world was not worthy. Do you see the long line? That line has been continued even to this day and will be continued until the present time shall close. As you watch these different followers of Christ in the procession, one thing, one thing will strike you. However much they differ in some respects, they are all alike in one thing. Every one of them carries a cross. There is no exception to this rule from the master down to the last disciple. Is it a procession of cross bearers? The day will come when there will be a transformation scene and you will see all these cross bearers transformed into crown wearers. But rest assured, that old motto, no cross, no crown, is certainly true. And those who refuse to carry the cross after Christ on this earth shall never be permitted to wear the crown with Christ in the land that is beyond the stars. When Jesus came to this earth, my friends, he came and said one very simple thing, one simple message to people. Will you trust me? Will you? With everything? Everything? With your expectations, with your hopes, your dreams, your life, everything? Will you? 
And to those that will trust him, he promises someday this transformation will take place. And every Sunday I ask you all the same thing. Will you trust him? Will you? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you will help us to trust you. There's so much in this life that hurts. There's so much pain and sorrow, unmet expectations. And yet behind all of that is Jesus Christ the King who says, come, take up your cross, follow me, trust me. My Father will honor you. Please help us do that, Father. Help us do it every day with everything. Don't let us be shocked or amazed by anything. But see it as a chance, an opportunity to live in a redemptive way to those around us. Loving, forgiving, extending our hands of friendship and welcome to the least, the last, and the lost. For such were we until you saved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.